So, who is God? That is the uh, big question that Exodus is seeking to answer. Who is God? We know him from Genesis as creator, but Exodus begins to reveal him as much more than just creator. In fact, in Exodus, God reveals himself to be much more than that. Who is God? Who is the Lord? And Moses masterfully puts this question on the lips of Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5, Exodus 5 verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover I will not let Israel go. As he asked that question, we find out he's going to know, isn't he? Everybody is going to know by the end of Exodus who is the Lord. So God takes Israel as his people in chapter 6 so that they may know that he is Lord. The plagues are introduced in chapter 7 so that the Egyptians may know that he is Lord. Indeed, he rescues the Israelites from those plagues so that the Egyptians might know that he is Lord. He speaks through Moses in chapter 8, so that they may know that no one is like the Lord their God. He separates off Israel later in chapter 8, so that they may know that he is Lord. In chapter 10, he tells them that what he has done for them, and what he has done to the Egyptians, they're to tell their children and grandchildren, so that they might know that he is Lord. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. He defeats the Egyptian army. He sends meat for his people in the wilderness. He gives them the Sabbath. All those things were told us so that they might know that he is Lord. But the word Lord there, all the way through, is not really Lord. Small letters, L-O-R-D. When it says Lord, that they might know that he is Lord, it's not a title, Like, you know, Lord Lucan. Sorry, that's the first Lord that came to my head. (laughs) But it's the the Hebrew name for God. Four letters, Y-H-W-H, which is where you sometimes get the word Jehovah from. Often now we say Yahweh. But when it says Lord with those capital letters, that they might know that he is Lord, it's talking about his name. He explains it to Moses in chapter 3 at the burning bus. Moses that's true. Exodus chapter 3, 13 to 15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, The Lord, I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now that name, Yahweh, Jehovah, those four letters in Hebrew, are there in Genesis. They do occasionally appear. But Exodus is really the home of that name. The name is forever linked to be the, with the God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And the name is literally, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. It's an invitation for God to be seen by his actions in Exodus. It's as though God is saying with that name, 
watch me. I'll show you who I am. I will be what I will be. And God sums it up to Moses in chapter chapter 34 as he passes by Moses and proclaims his name. This is what he says in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, those four letters again, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, (coughs) forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Which if you think about what you see about God's character in Exodus, the forgiving God and yet one who does not uh, by any means clear the guilty, it sums up who God is in Exodus. So what do we really see in Exodus then? About God is saying, watch me, and he's saying, that is my name. What do we see? Three things. Firstly, God is a redeemer. God reveals himself to be redeemer. And if you think about it, this is something that you couldn't know about God in the Garden of Eden. You couldn't know God as a God who rescues in Eden. But God here reveals himself that that is part of his character, to rescue. Now there is something to rescue from. And he rescues on a huge scale, doesn't he? Because the whole story of Exodus really is the story of a rescue. More than that, a redemption, a rescuing out of slavery. Even our terms for talking about our rescuing Jesus in the New Testament comes from what was going on in the Old Testament, don't they? We talk about redemption. Well, actually, really, the redemption that was there first was the redemption from Egypt, from them being slaves there. And as we're redeemed from slavery to sin, the image is the same. He redeems them from Egypt. And Egypt was no minor foe. They were essentially the biggest world power of the time. This would be like taking on America or China or Russia. Militarily, they were the strongest in the world. And yet, not only does God take them on, he defeats them without a single shot being fired, so to speak. He rescues his people without them having to take up arms. He so devastates the country of Egypt, but by the end, the Egyptians beg the people to go, don't they? And they send them with riches, they send them with their gold and jewellery. They actually leave Egypt better off than they were before, which is what happens with the patriarchs each time, you notice, when they go in Genesis. And when Pharaoh changes his mind and the might of the Egyptian army comes after them... He rescues his people by doing a creation-level miracle, as once again he parts the seas to bring land. He does so by the wind. But the wind there is is ruach, it's the same word for spirit. The spirit who pushes back the walls of water. We're not told of a single Israelite that was hurt or injured. And yet the Egyptian army is utterly destroyed as God brings the waters crashing back down upon them. Reminiscent of the judgment in the flood, if you think about it, as he brings those back down. But notice, he doesn't just rescue from Egypt. He doesn't just rescue from evil and slavery. God also in Exodus rescues from his own judgment. We'll touch more on judgment in a few moments' time. But notice in the big events of Passover that happens in Exodus, the big rescue. 
It's not the Egyptians that would get them in Passover, is it? It's actually God. God is coming for the firstborn. And you know the story, don't you, as they uh, must kill a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost to show that a death has already taken place. Actually, God's judgment is seen on the death of all the firstborn sons, Pharaoh's included. But his wrath is averted as the blood is seen on the doors, as a death has already taken place. All the way through, it's to do with firstborn sons, interestingly. So Pharaoh's, Israel's, even Moses' firstborn son. If you have a look at chapter 4, I bet there's a story you didn't do in Sunday school if you went there. Where God seems to come in and, and attempt to kill Moses' child, his firstborn son. Even that is averted by blood, if you look at that story. So we saved, God saves from his own judgment, is what we see. Now Rob Bell, the outspoken voice of American postmodern liberalism, that's quite a long sentence, isn't it? Um, asked the question a few years ago, he said, what kind of God is it that we need to be rescued from God? How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news? And that's why people want nothing to do with the Christian faith, he said. But Exodus explains that precisely too, doesn't he? It's because God is good, because God is trustworthy, that the problem comes to the surface in the first place. Because secondly, we see that God is redeemer, but we also see that God is judge. This is another part of God that we see in Exodus. We cannot escape how clearly it's seen that God judges the Egyptians. Even people who don't know much about the Bible generally know about the plagues, don't they? They generally know, even if it's just they've seen Prince of Egypt um, from a few years ago. Plagues there that undid the natural order. Darkness in the day. Water turning to blood. Hail in the desert. Plagues that cause things to abound in places where they shouldn't. Frogs, gnats, flies, locusts. Plagues that remind us of God's judgment on the natural order in Genesis. Death and disease. In Exodus, God is revealed not to be some doddery old man in the sky. He is almighty judge. His people have been oppressed, afflicted, mistreated, held in slavery. And God meets out justice. The Egyptians sowed evil and they reaped destruction. But we also see in Exodus that God is not partial in his judgment. He judges the Israelites too. So, for example, when they worship the golden calf, he sends a plague after them. And we'll see again and again as we go through the rest of the story in the first five books, that when his people sin, God judges them. So God is the judge of the whole earth. He's not restricted to one people or one nation. And he's not intimidated by the power and might of kings. God is a judge. And then thirdly, we see that God is holy. God is holy. The word holy appears for the first time in Exodus in the Bible. As Moses approaches the burning bush, he's told that it is holy ground. It's holy because God is there and God is holy. Fire, interestingly, seems to coincide with these pictures of God's holiness. The bush, the mountain, the incense. God's holiness is like a fire. Dazzlingly beautiful, blindingly beautiful, but also dangerous. 
God warns them when he visits them on the mountain not to come close to the mountain, lest he break out against them. So his holiness is to do with his beautiful moral purity and perfection, his otherness from us that cannot tolerate sin or impurity. And throughout the book we see pictures of God's holiness. We see it in the law. So a big chunk of the book deals with God's moral decrees. A reflection of God's moral character that he wants his people to emulate, to be holy. And it was never with this, do this and be saved. It was never, do this to be my people. If you think about the position of the Ten Commandments and the law in Exodus, it comes after he's taken them to be his people. As a nation, they are now his adopted son. And they are to show the family likeness. And the laws reflect what that looked like for them. We also see God's holiness in the setup of the tabernacle, which takes up a huge chunk of Exodus. If you've ever done sort of Bible in a year, you get to that bit in Exodus where it starts telling you all the bits in the temple, or sorry, the tabernacle, and um, you, you find out, you know, it just says all this was done, and then it tells you all of it was done exactly as was said. But the tabernacle was a special tent set up that God may dwell amongst his people. But you notice with the tabernacle, it's not an open entry structure. It was layered so that fewer and fewer people could have access to the inner parts. The innermost part, the Holy of Holies, was only accessible by the high priests and only once a year after many sacrifices. But we're straight into Leviticus there. But the very layout that they're given in Exodus shows that God is set apart, is holy, is separate. And yet, like the other pictures of his holiness, the tabernacle is beautiful. Covered in imagery from Eden, God sets apart two men who were especially gifted by the Holy Spirit himself to make the designs for the temple, to make it beautiful, set apart from gold and silver and wood. And when they're done, God's glory fills the tabernacle in a cloud so great that we're told even Moses cannot enter the tent. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? You think, wow, they've done it just right. God's glory has entered the tent in this cloud. But that's a problem, isn't it? If you think about it, at the end of Exodus, they've done all this stuff. They've come out of Egypt. They've been given the law. They've been given the instructions for the tabernacle. They've built it. And then nobody can get in it. God comes down and you're left with that question, how can anybody enter it? If God is so holy, how can anybody get in the tabernacle? Well, that's a, a question that will be answered in Leviticus, but it's raised in Exodus. So bringing it all together, God in Exodus is about God revealing himself. He's showing his people who he is in so many different ways. And yet, we are in a better position than they were. We have God's full revelation in Jesus, who we're told in John's Gospel, tabernacled amongst us. In Jesus, a holy God was able to dwell with a sinful people. Like I say, the questions are raised in Exodus, but we see the fruit of them in the Gospels. And we know God even better as a Redeemer. We have a better blood than the blood of the Passover lamb. Indeed, 1 Corinthians 5-7 calls Jesus our Passover lamb, the one who has died in our place, the one who took the wrath that we deserve as a substitute. We know God better as judge, don't we? We're told in scripture that he has appointed a judge, Jesus Christ, 
and given us proof by raising him from the dead. So it's not that we find that we have good cop and bad cop. You know, it's sometimes played out, so you know, God the Father's bad cop, and Jesus is good cop, and they sort of, you know, give you a different message. No. Both have the same character. Good judge. That's what we should say. So he will judge the world with righteousness and truth. But we see a picture of it in Exodus of what awaits those who harden their hearts against God. We also know the holiness of God better. We know his moral character as we see it in Jesus. We know that it would take uh, what it would take for God to dwell with his people. Because we are so immoral, yet he is so moral, so holy. We know that it takes the death of his son, not just the death of any lamb. And we know how living for God is not about bare externals following rules, but something that comes from the heart and expresses itself in that way, and needs the help of his spirit. So who is the Lord? Well, the answer really is Jesus is Lord, isn't it? That's what we see. And one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess it. And Exodus points us towards that. So let's pray. Father, we'll thank you that you haven't left us in the dark about your character. Father, thank you that we know who you are, especially through the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and revealed you fully to us. Father, thank you that you are a great redeemer, not just of one nation from one uh, oppressor, but of all your people throughout all of time, through the blood of Christ. So, Father, we pray that as we see these wonderful pictures in Exodus, that it would push us to think of our wonderful Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.